Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, it's on page 811 in your pew Bibles. We're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48. Uh, If you were here last week, and even if you weren't, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13. We talked about love in the context of the local church. Uh, Paul is rebuking and teaching the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, and he's not talking, not rebuking everybody out there in the world that's not loving one another well. He's talking about we here in the church don't love people well, and so we need to do that better. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 was about. This morning, we're talking about loving our enemies, loving the people that hate us, loving the people that we don't get along with, that we quite frankly don't like. Well, how do we do that? Well, Jesus gives us a great teaching on that from these verses here. So let me read for us Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those, if you love, excuse me, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you than doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray now that you would teach us from your word, that you would show us how we might love our enemies. We all have them, Lord, that we would see them not as our enemy, but as our neighbor. That we would desire and yearn that they would understand the same grace and mercy and truth that we have and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are certain dates that I can mention, and the very date itself reminds you of what happened on that day. In fact, the images and emotions of that day might even come flooding back into your mind. September 11th, 2001. 9-11, as we say in shorthand. Just in the few seconds I've given you, it's all come rushing back, isn't it? The, The images of that day, the emotions that you had, where you were when you heard that a plane and were planes had been flown into the Twin Towers in New York City. I was a sophomore in college at the University of Tennessee. Someone came by my room and said, hey, have you heard that a plane got flown into the Twin Towers in New York? And you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you didn't be- even believe it. It was like, okay, you know, what movie have you seen recently? You, just, you didn't really know what to say. But if you're like me, you turned on TV and you watched television for the next few months, really. <laughs> you couldn't believe that what you saw. Is there really a religion out there that teaches that this is right, that you earn reward for doing something like this? Yes, there is. And so words like Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda and terrorism became part of the vernacular of our world. They had been that before. We had heard of them, but it became pushed to the forefront. What am I supposed to understand about them and what they've done? And again, if you're like me, you had a lot of emotions that day and the days that followed, and a lot of it was anger and hatred and scorn, and and let's get them back for what they've done. But Jesus tells us that we ought to love our enemies. Now let me be clear. I'm making a spiritual argument here. I'm not saying anything about the civil realm. I'm not making a civil argument in how our nation and government ought to respond to something like that. That's outside of the scope of the sermon. I'm saying how should we, the church, respond spiritually to our enemies? You've seen the pictures or the video, perhaps, lately of ISIS. They've beheaded Christians on a beach. 
If you live in the Middle East, you may be killed just for the simple fact that you are a Christian. Closer to home, we are Christians are scorned and reviled and ostracized and made fun of for our belief about marriage or our belief about abortion or any number of things. And it's easy, it's quick for us to say, these people are our enemies. We don't like them. We, bo- we draw the battle lines. Now, do we have truth that we ought to proclaim and be bold in that? Of course. But they're not our enemy. They're our neighbor. And so Jesus totally changes our mindset in this passage to see you don't have enemies, you have neighbors. And the people that you perceive as enemies, you don't treat them with hate and scorn. You love them and you pray for them. So how do we love our enemies? How do we get the, the ability to do this? Well, you don't have it in and of yourself to love your enemies. But through Christ, you most certainly can. And we will look to what he's done for us. We get motivation and we see how we ought to do that. So here's my proposition. Because God loves his enemies and because God loves his people, we are able to love our enemies because of how he's loved us. That's the only way we can do it, is if we consider the way that he's loved us, we will then be enabled to love our enemies. So let's talk about this passage in three ways. The first is verse 43. It's the misunderstanding that the Pharisees had of the command. The command was, love your neighbor as yourself. They didn't look at it that way. (laughs) So it's the misunderstanding which led to the misapplication. That's number one. In verse 21, Jesus gives six examples of how the scribes and Pharisees believed that they were practicing correct righteousness. He says it six times. You have heard that it was said, but I say. You have heard that it was said, but I say. You have heard that it was said from the Pharisees to do this, that, or the other, but I'm correcting what they said. Now, the Pharisees weren't saying, or Jesus was not saying, you have heard that it was said in the Old Testament and Moses and the prophets, but I'm telling you something new. No, Jesus is correcting the teaching of the Pharisees. He's clarifying what the Old Testament directive of love, in this case, love your neighbor as yourself, really meant. You see, the Pharisees had done something with the law. They took the law of God and they added all these additional laws around it. Okay, they really wanted to, at least initially, they really wanted to keep the law of God, so they made these additional hedge laws that they thought would really protect them from violating the law of God. Well, on the surface, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea. But they took these additional laws, and in most cases, they had been risen to the level of the authority of a command of God. You see, they'd taken their additional laws and said, these are just as important, and sometimes they're more important than the law of God. And in this case, love your neighbor as yourself. They were practicing legalism. They believed that their actions and deeds achieved salvation, achieved merit, achieved acceptance from God. You see, the scribes and Pharisees were adding. And they did this by their oral traditions, as I mentioned, which by the third century would, have been, would be codified into what was called the Mishnah, 800 pages in English. And then they made commentaries of the additional laws called the Talmuds. You can see the snowball here, right? Well, where was it going to end? What... They're going to keep going and keep going. Scribes and Pharisees sought to be stringent law keepers, but all they were really doing was exalting themselves and adding additional laws. They had no care and concern for God. Here's what John MacArthur says about this passage. The scribes and Pharisees were proud, they were prejudiced, they were judgmental and spiteful and hateful, but they masqueraded as the custodians of God's law and the spiritual leaders of Israel. To them... Jesus' command to love your enemies must have seemed so naive and foolish. They not only felt that they had the right, but the duty to hate their enemies. 
Again, confirming what Jesus would say in them in places like Mark chapter 7. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They have the appearance of goodness. They have the appearance of loving God and his law, but their hearts wanted nothing to do with them. And they justified this view in a couple of ways. They didn't just make it up. They tried. They thought they were looking to the Bible to justify this. They look at, to the commands of the Israelites to go and to wipe out nations in the land of Canaan. Well, didn't God say go wipe out those that lived in Jericho and other nations? They hated those people, right? Well, shouldn't we then be able to hate our enemies? They looked at the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms, where David and the other authors are saying, Lord, pour out your wrath on this person. You know, justify your, uh, make your, your name is great. Stick, stand up for yourself. And so the Pharisees and scribes will say, well, look, this, this is no different. We're just doing the same thing. But what a blatant misunderstanding of Scripture. What a blatant twisting of it. God used the Israelites as an instrument of judgment on those people. It said nothing of the personal feelings that the Israelites were supposed to have about those nations. He was using them to carry out their judgment. Okay? David, when he talks about God pouring his wrath out on someone, it's not a personal vendetta that David has towards, towards these people. He's saying, Lord, vindicate yourself. Lord, you are good and holy and right. Would you come and do this? Just as this for us, we are not instruments of judgment onto our culture and onto the world. Yes, we declare boldly, if you don't turn to Christ, you will go to hell and you will be condemned. We are not instruments of judgment. Therefore, we don't have any hate towards anyone else. We're called to love them, as Jesus says. John MacArthur again says, In summary, it's one thing to defend the honor of God by seeking the defeat of his detracting enemies. That's good. It's another thing to hate people personally as your own enemy. That's bad and wrong. The attitude we must have, even toward the worst pagans or heretics, is to love them and pray that they would turn to God and to be saved. The scribes and Pharisees had taken God's law and they had changed it, they had altered it, they had omitted things. The command was love your neighbor as yourself, but they took the as yourself off. And they had also added, and hate your enemies. Of course, that's not what God's law had originally said. And so this omission of as yourself took this broad term of neighbor and they shrunk it down to something that, almost, that meant like a couple of people. <laughs> your neighbor at least was, your Jew, was a Jewish friend of yours. Well, they didn't look at it that way. They hated the Gentiles and they clearly were enemies. But any sinner who was a Jew, maybe was a tax collector, an adulterer, or someone who was unjust, or you know, any unsavory person that they didn't want to be around, they also considered them Excuse me, they also considered them to be an enemy. This is why they're so shocked when Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Because their view of enemy, of enemy was just someone that they didn't happen, happen to like. Some person they didn't care to be with. How do we do this? How do we twist and turn our law, add to it, take from it, to meet our own desires? You, know, you often look at God's call to love and you're like, can I even do that? That seems, that seems a bit much. That's, you're, you're asking quite a lot. Well, if you go to God's law and it overwhelms you and you think you can't do it, that's the right response that you're to have. You can't. You can't love someone this way perfectly. You don't have the ability to do it, yet you're commanded to do it, and Christ gives you the motivation and the ability. How do we do this? How do we... No, we, we would never say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What's the current day vernacular that we would use? Love your neighbor and ignore and shun the people you don't want to hang out with. 
That's what we would say. Love your neighbor and be passive-aggressive towards other people. We wouldn't say hate, but we would use it in another way. Be passive-aggressive towards someone who doesn't agree with you. The law was meant to show the Pharisees just how sinful they were. It was meant to show them, you don't have this in yourself. You need someone else's righteousness to cover you. You need the righteousness of Christ. The law was pointing them outside of themselves to Jesus. They didn't see that. They said, okay, well, we can't do God's law, so let's make up all this other stuff to make us feel better and maybe something that we can achieve. The bottom line, the Pharisees did not want to love like God had commanded them, so they intentionally misunderstood and misapplied Scripture. Number two, Jesus takes this intentional misunderstanding, he corrects it. So number two is the correction and the clarification. In verse 44, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he he corrects their thinking about the command. Don't show hate and disdain for those who look down upon you or hate you. Return it with love. The scribes and Pharisees were so focused on who their neighbor was, they never considered how to love their neighbor. In Luke chapter 10, the lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus gives an explanation, and then the man says, but tell me, who who is my neighbor? Just tell me who it is. Jesus, stop worrying about who your neighbor is. Your, Your neighbor's everywhere, because your neighbor's everyone. And that's how we ought to live. What did Jesus expect them to do, and what is he expecting from us? The world says return evil for evil. When someone scorns you, you scorn them back. When someone says something sarcastic to you, you fire right back at them with a sarcastic comment. When they say something hurtful to you, you say something hurtful right back. Jesus says no. When someone comes at you hatefully, you return love. When someone curses you, you return with blessing. That's what he's trying to explain in in the section that precedes ours, the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth. We give good when evil is given to us. You see, Jesus is not telling them to feel something about their enemies. He's telling them to treat them in a certain way. He's not saying, have a a positive emotion towards your enemies now. (laughs) No, he's saying, do something loving for them. It's tied to an action, just as as Paul explained last week in 1 Corinthians 13. Next, Jesus says, those who persecute you are your enemies. What do you do for them? People that have harmful intentions against you. Everyone in here has accumulated some enemies in their life. Let's be honest. People that don't like you, it may be legitimate reasons, it may be illegitimate reasons. These people always seem to be going against you. They oppose your lifestyle, your religion, always seeming to be antagonistic against you. Maybe this is a rebellious child. Maybe this is an ill-tempered spouse. This is a neighbor or co-worker who's always complaining about something that you've done or said. Maybe this is a friend or coworker who believes you're close-minded, you're a bigot, you're a hate-filled Christian just because of the God you serve. Jesus is telling you to respond to each of them. Love them, love them, love them. That's not our natural response. It's the eye for the eye, it's the tooth for the tooth. It's not love. John Chrysostom said that prayer is the highest summit of self-control and that we have most brought our lives into conformity to God's standards when we can pray for our persecutors. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in teaching on this verse, verse 44, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy. This is a great imagery here. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead with him to God. 
We intercede on his behalf. First Pres, let me issue you a challenge, each of you individually. I challenge you for one week to pray for somebody that you, that's an enemy of yours, that you don't like. For one week, pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray for, their, pray for blessing. Pray for goodness. Pray for health. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to prophesy up here. I'm not going to tell you what's going to change in them, but I bet something's going to change in you. If you've made up your mind to dislike or hate somebody, that's probably what's going to happen. But if you pray for them, I bet the anger, the resentment that you may feel for them, it's going to begin to subside. Would you pray for somebody for one week? I bet most of you remember the story. It was the summer of 2012. President of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy, came out and made a clear statement on his and the company's belief of marriage. He said they supported the biblical definition of marriage. They support the family. We're a family-owned business, family-led. We are married to our first wives, and we give thanks to God for that. Not surprisingly, this blew up. <laughs> they were labeled a hate group, all sorts of uh, uh, groundswell of picket lines and let's boycott. There were even college campuses that kicked Chick-fil-A off their campus. It, he didn't say much about anything else. He just affirmed what he believed. What did he do in response? Shane Windmeyer is the campus pride director. He's a gay activist. He's an openly gay man. In fact, he's married to another man. And in the January, January of 2013, in the Huffington Post, Shane Winmeyer came out as a friend of Dan Cathy. Why? <laughs> Shane Winmeyer had heard what Dan Cathy had said about marriage. He had even set up boycotts at the Chick-fil-A's that were near his home and in his community. But after talking with Dan Cathy face-to-face, here's what Shane Winmeyer said. Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life. He wanted to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, and even my husband, Tommy. And in return, I learned about his wife and his kids, and I gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than just a Christian. Dan expressed regret and a genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Let us follow his example. What do we want to do? You're wrong. This is bad. We just lob grenades of truth in, in, into other people's lives. Why don't we go and get to know people that are our enemies, our perceived enemies? Why don't we get to know them? Yes, we're bold, we share what's true, and we're very clear about that. But why don't we love the people in our life with whom we disagree in this way? Dan Cathy, he, he went and got to know the man. No, there's no sign that the man turned his life to, and turned it over to Christ and became a Christian. But what a powerful testimony on what we ought to do. Consider the situation that's been in the news this week with Bruce Jenner. It's really come to a head this last week. Bruce Jenner was a 1970s playboy. He seemingly had it all. He won the gold medal in the decathlon at the 1976 Montreal Olympics. And as of last week, at age of 65, he's decided to have a sex change operation and now wishes to go by Caitlyn Jenner. Jenner really has become the poster child for tolerance and acceptance in our culture today. He's the poster child for this sexual revolution and anarchy that really defines what our nation is becoming. You know, it seems that we're coming to a place in our culture where we're going to praise any behavior, no matter what it is, as long as you can, 
tell everyone that it makes you happy and that it's being true to who you really are. Now it doesn't matter what you do. It's believed that our gender can be chosen, and it's not a part of being in the image of God. But the Bible says that's not so. The Bible says, and it's clear, that our gender is a part of who we are and of being in the image of God. The Bible is clear. We are made perfectly, each of us. Yes, our personalities and characteristics, our likes and dislikes might vary widely, but we are created in the image of God, male and female. You've probably been overwhelmed this week by articles that people want you to read on this topic, blog posts, opinion pieces. Most likely we've heard that Jenner is brave, he's courageous, he's a role model. Well, candidly, yeah, it took a lot of bravery to be paraded around to every talk show in America this week, to receive thousands of dollars in appearance fees, to be placed on the cover of Vanity Fair, and in, in a couple of months to receive the ESPY Award for the Arthur Ashe Courage at the ESPN Awards. Not to mention that everywhere that Jenner turns in this, in this culture, he's praised, he receives accolades, and he's encouraged for what he's done. What Jenner has done is hardly brave, and it's in no way courageous. But what do we do? How do we respond? In our culture? How do we respond, the church, to this situation that's really a tipping point right now? I'm not saying, let me be clear, that Bruce Jenner is our enemy. He's not our enemy. He represents a movement and a mindset in this culture that's wholly against Christianity and submitting to God. It's altogether narcissistic and it disdains authority. But how do we love people who agree with this sexual revolution in our culture? What do we do with this practically? How do I love my enemy here? The enemy is not the people. The enemy is the evil one who is deceived and continues to persecute. Let us stand with our friends, the people that we know, and plead their case before God. That they would know the same grace and mercy and forgiveness that we understand. That the, that the Lord would open their eyes to see it's about submitting to God and His perfect will and direction for this world. As one article said this week I read, Bruce Jenner does not need our applause he doesn't need our scorn. He does not need our scoffing. He needs our prayers. I'm not bringing these up issues up to anger you. I hope I'm not coming across as if I'm grinding an axe somehow. There's no time for anger. There's no time for being upset. There's time for prayer. Jesus is asking, how are you going to treat the people in your life that seem to be enemies? They're really your neighbors, but how are you going to treat these enemies? Are you going to love them? You're just going to be upset with them all the time. Don't treat them like the Pharisees did. Let us earnestly and sincerely pray for our enemies that they would know their Maker and their Heavenly Father just as we do. So Jesus comes to the end. The result, lastly, third point, the result and the reward. What is the desired result that Jesus is getting at here? After all, he's preaching a sermon. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is a great preacher, so he's driving home to a point. There's a verdict he wants us to reach. In verse 45, he said that you may be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. John Calvin says that we must feel the weight of Jesus' teaching here. He says, no man will be a child of God unless he loves those who hate him. If someone wishes to be a Christian, then they must love their enemies. And to neglect this command is to be struck out of the number of the children of God. John Calvin is not saying, if you love your enemies, you will be saved. He's saying, loving your enemies is revealing your true heart. And if you truly are a child of God. Because children of God love their enemies. It's what they do. 
And this leads to Jesus' cutting remark to the Pharisees in verse 46. He cuts through their hypocrisy. (laughs) You Pharisees, you're, you're just like the Gentiles. If you just love everybody that's like you and that likes you back, you're just like the Gentile. Imagine how they took that, comparing them to a Gentile. Jesus then sums up and he ends this passage in verse 48 by declaring, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, everybody, you're called to be perfect. You got any questions? Go and be perfect. John MacArthur clarifies this for us one more time. That perfection is utterly impossible in man's own power. To those who wonder how Jesus can demand the impossible, well, he later says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That which God demands, he provides the power to accomplish. Man's own righteousness is possible, but it's imperfect and therefore worthless. God's righteousness is impossible for the very reason that it's perfect. But the impossible righteousness becomes possible for those who trust in Jesus Christ because he gives them his righteousness. That is precisely our Lord's point in these illustrations, to lead his audience to an overpowering sense of spiritual bankruptcy. You're to be perfect, but you can't. So what do you do? You trust in Jesus who was perfect. You're supposed to love your enemies and love perfectly, but but I can't. Then trust Jesus. He'll enable you to do that. When you have a situation like this in life, what do you do? Okay, i got to get the willpower to love this person. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Christ, would you remind me of what I've been forgiven of and how you've loved me that I might now show that to someone else? We turn to Christ again and again and again. So how do you love? How do you seek to love your enemies? Let me close with this illustration. But some of you have read the book The Hiding Place by Corey Tinden. The Hiding Place is about Corey and her, and her family, specifically about her father and her sister Betsy. They were living in Holland in the 1930s, and they had built a literal hiding place where they would hide Jews and political prisoners fleeing Nazi persecution. But during the Nazi invasion of Holland, Corey, Betsy, and her father were arrested and sent to a Nazi prison where their father would die. And several months later, the Betsy and Corey would be sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, where Corey would, di- or, excuse me, where Betsy would die, but Corey would survive. The book *The Hiding Place* is about their hiding the Jews and the political prisoners, but it's also stories about the concentration camp. But it really zeroes in on the relationship that Corey has with her father, as well as her sister Betsy. Corey uh, went around the world after that. She was teaching mainly on forgiveness. How. She was able to forgive, and the great forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. She tells many stories, but this was the one that stuck with me the most. She was in Munich in 1947. She had just got done speaking, speaking on forgiveness to the crowd that was there, and then she saw him. A bald, heavyset man in a brown overcoat walking towards her. He couldn't be- she couldn't believe who she had seen. She just got done speaking about forgiveness. <laughs> And she looked up and saw the very person that she never wanted to see. One moment she saw the man, this overcoat and brown hat, and the next moment in her mind's eye she saw the same man in a blue overcoat and a hat that had a skull and crossbones on it. You see, this man was a guard at Ravensbrook concentration camp, and she remembered him. This man that had whipped her, this man that had forced her to stand naked in front of him, now was approaching her. What, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to say to this man? And he finally gets up to Corey and he reaches out her, his hand and, to shake her hand. 
She said she froze. It seemed like a few, it was a few seconds, but it seemed like hours. It, what, am I really just to forgive this man? It, then everything would be gone. Is it, it, it really just a handshake going to really forgive him for what he did? And the fact that my sister died in the concentration camp, I can't shake this man's hand. But I had just spoken of forgiveness. So the man looked at her. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, the man said. I was a guard there. She was thankful that he didn't remember her. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips. Corey, will you forgive me? She said she stood there. She didn't know what to say. But she knew she had to do it. She knew she had to forgive this man. It was a commandment. A commandment of God, a daily experience to forgive, but she felt the coldness clutching her heart. Forgiveness is not an emotion, it's an act of the will, it's a deed that we do, she said. Help, she prayed silently to the Lord. I cannot lift my hand. But then she felt a warmness that came over her heart, and finally she extended her arm, she extended her hand, and shook the man's hand. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And for a long moment they grasped one another's hands the former guard and the former prisoner, experiencing forgiveness with each other. And she said at the very end, I have never known God's love more intensely than I did then. Did you hear that? I had never experienced God's love more intensely than I did in that moment. She literally forgave her enemy. Can you imagine have been in a similar situation? Our world today, First Perez, uh, the city of Macon, the person you can't get along with, the atheists that are a friend of yours that you debate every single week, your enemy needs grace from you. That's not what they deserve. This man didn't deserve to have Corey forgive him. He didn't deserve that. But let's be careful when we start talking about the things that we deserve because we will not like the result of that conversation. You deserve to have God scoff at you and turn his back on you. You deserve that he would not regard you in any way because of your sinfulness. You see, whether we like it or not, we are all in Adam. And when he sinned, so did we. When he fell, so did we. And we can't pick ourselves back up. We needed a righteousness that was outside of ourselves to be given to us to make everything okay again, to make everything right. And think about it. What was Jesus' response to his enemies? When they were mocking him, when they were beating him, when they were sinning against him, humiliating him, thrusting a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him with a robe, what did Jesus say? What did he say as he was hung, hanging on the cross and they're laughing at him? His literal enemies, what did he do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His response to his enemies was to go to the cross and die for them. What is your response to yours? He's modeling for us what we ought to do. Stand arm in arm, side by side. Lord, would you have grace and mercy on this unbeliever who doesn't know you? Would you love them and treat them the same way you've treated me? And we plead with the Heavenly Father for this. We want to see people brought to the kingdom of God, so let's pray for that. And let us long to see people receive the same grace and mercy that we've received in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we confess to you that, that loving our enemies is very, very difficult. We don't want to, and in some instances we don't even know how we're going to do it. But Lord, we would always forgive how you, for, we'd always remember how you have forgiven us through Jesus Christ. All of our sins, you've removed them from us. Lord, that we yearn and desire that we would see more brought to you in faith. 
Would you be with us now as we go from here, Lord? Would you give us forgiveness and grace in our hearts? And we thank you that we can do that because of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? We will sing the, la- uh, the first verse of O Church Arise following the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.